This is Nick Redding, and you're listening to PreserveCast, a podcast with a worldwide listenership that explores the broad world of preservation from every angle, from drones to mudlarking and everything in between. Now, let's get preserving. I was introduced to Guédelon by a previous PreserveCast guest, Peter Ginn, who participated in Secrets of the Castle, a BBC series which explored the challenges of building a castle using only medieval techniques. Peter connected us to Sarah Preston, today's guest, and the rest, they say, is history. Uh, bonjour, uh, c'est Sarah Preston. Je suis à Guédelon d'Olyon, à deux heures au sud de Paris, et vous écoutez Preserve Cast. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast today. We're thrilled to be talking to our first guest from France. We're speaking with Sarah Preston, who works on site at Guédelon, a historic site that we're going to be talking all about that is very unique. And she works there as a bilingual tour guide and behind the scenes as a press officer. Um, Sarah, this is going to be a lot of fun. We, we got chatting a little bit before we um, clicked record on this episode. Um, and so... Um, you know, we're, we're coming to you at a time when, because of the pandemic, uh, France is coming into a little bit of a lockdown. Um, so the site isn't open, but before we, we talk all about the site, we love to get to know our guests. Um, so, um, where did you grow up and I suppose what got you interested in, in history? How did you end up where you are today? I grew up in the West of England. Um, uh, in a family where there was lots of interest in history. My dad was particularly interested in industrial archaeology, so we would spend our weekends going to find disused canals, and um, we were members of the National Trust, obviously, so we spent uh, a lot of time in and out of stately buildings and and historical monuments. So I I guess the interest in history was was always around us. Uh, It was really... Uh, my interest in French history came uh, through school exchanges, which I I don't know what it's like in the States, but there used to be lots of systems of exchanges between classes. So you'd go and spend a week in a French family and then the student would come back and and stay with you. And that gave me a a huge opportunity to to explore uh, France and French life and French food mainly. Um, And then French history. So when I came to live in France, and found a job here at the castle, it was like all my interests came together, languages, history, and getting to wear a long dress. So it was great. And did you study history? Was that, you have a degree in it or? I studied history up into A-level, which is uh, until you're 18. And then at university, I studied French. So that was mainly French literature, but obviously within that, there was was some history. But no, I, I didn't study history particularly. And I knew nothing about the 13th century, which is the area that we're interested here at Guédelon. The style of castle that we're building is an early 13th century style castle. Uh, I knew nothing about that period really beyond the name Richard Lionheart. And it was only through studying this period that I came to understand that many of the kind of causes of tension that still exist between France and England go right back to this period when England is just another part of the Plantagenet Empire. It's not it's not a question of two, two independent nations at that particular time. So that was really interesting to, to understand, yeah, the tensions between the, the different kingdoms. Yeah, that was. And it's it's interesting too that uh, Guédelon would would hire a a Brit um, to be. Now I suppose it's because you're a bilingual interpreter, so you must have a lot of English speaking people coming to the site. But let's talk about 
the site before we dive into how you interpret it and who who visits and all that kind of thing. Because I think for the American audience that's listening, they may not be familiar with it. Um, so where is it located? Um, and and how did this project start? So let's let's go with the basics first. Like paint us a picture of where it's located, um, you know, perhaps in relation to some larger landmarks that people might be familiar with in France. And then how does this begin? How Where does this idea come from that we're going to build a 13th century castle? Well, uh, in terms of the, the geography, Guédelon is two hours south of Paris. Uh, lots of the uh, American visitors that come to us often go to Paris, visit the medieval Louvre, uh, which if you've been to, the, to, the, to the, the museum, the Louvre, if you go down into the basement, you still have the remains of the, the medieval castle that was built there in the, the late 12th, early 13th century. So they'll go and see the ruins there. They come two hours south to Guédelon. Uh, that gives you an opportunity to see a castle as it would have been when it was just finished. And then you can go uh, to, to west along the Loire to visit the Renaissance castles. Uh, and then often lots of American visitors, we were talking about Normandy earlier, then make their way up to the, to the beaches at the end. So we're in the middle of France, two hours south of Paris. And is it a, are there, is there a town nearby or is it sort of in the middle of nowhere or? I'm talking to you from the middle of a forest, thanks to the miracle of technology. Uh, we are several miles from one small village that way and several miles from another small village that way. Uh, so it's a pretty isolated spot. So where do you actually, and I, I don't, where do you actually live? Do you live in one of these smaller towns or do you live on site? Everybody lives off site, apart from obviously uh, we've got a couple of security guards on site. But apart from that, all the, the people who work here go home. It's very much a business. There's not an attempt here to live as in the Middle Ages. Our interest is, our interest is really in archaeology and in construction. So everybody goes home in their cars to their centrally heated homes and their showers. Uh, and I'm probably the furthest away. I'm an hour to the north, although not the furthest. The furthest is the master mason. You get this, lives in his very own castle. Uh, he's got an amazing castle, which is uh, it's about an hour, it's just about an hour and a half south of Paris. It's called Mais le Maréchal. And he believes it is the Louvre Mark II, that it was built uh, just after the Louvre. And it fits inside that castle like a Russian doll. It's an amazing sight. Wow. So, but do you, you don't live in your own castle? No, no, I don't. <laughs> so, um, how does this start? How do, so we, we've painted the picture about where it is sort of the middle of nowhere, two hours south of Paris in a beautiful forest. Where does the idea come from that, okay, we're going to build a 13th century castle and who pays for such a thing? Because it doesn't sound cheap. No. Well, the idea came um, from Saint-Fargeau. So Saint-Fargeau is eight kilometers from here. Uh, so there's a beautiful Renaissance red brick castle, uh, which was uh, owned at one time by the cousin of Louis XIV. And archaeologists discovered that hidden within those thick red brick walls are still the remains of a much earlier stone medieval fortress. So that was where the idea of building a medieval style castle was born. The idea was to 
build a castle to better understand how the master builders, the carpenters, the masons, the, the blacksmiths worked uh, uh, in the early 13th century. So the original idea was to rebuild Saint-Fargeau as it was in the 13th century. Actually, we've adapted the plans and the castle that we're building here uh, is is more typical of the castles built at that time. It's built on a standard plan, which was really put in place during the reign of King Philip Augustus, really important uh, figure in French history. And he standardized castle construction in order to produce a model that was both very easy to defend and much cheaper and quicker to produce. So who gets the idea? Where, where, where does that mean? So you've said that there's this idea Normally, it's sort of it's reminding me in some ways of like a colonial Williamsburg where they they get this idea that, well, we've got to do something like this. Um, Is there is there a Rockefeller in this story like there is in Williamsburg? Well, this is France. So in this story is dinner and around a dinner table. And I suspect several bottles of fine wine. The idea was born uh, uh, between Michel Guillaume who was at the time the owner and still is the owner of Saint-Fargeau Castle and the team of archaeologists that he was working with at the time. So it was an idea that was born um, in Saint-Fargeau, just a few miles down the road, but which really came into being when Michel and Marilyn Martin, who is the current, uh, she's the co-founder, but also the the president here, that she runs the, the site here. She was really the force that kind of got the funds together because as you say it's all very well having the idea but how are you going to fund it so she went about uh raising funds to get the 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 project off the ground but the deal was that we had three years to be self-financing so since the year 2000 Gedlin is entirely financed by our visitors so it's the people who come through the gates who pay for the team of 50 people to to build and how many visitors obviously this is a pre-COVID question, but how many visitors um, prior to COVID were you receiving on an annual basis? In a typical season, we have 300,000 visitors, including 500, no, sorry, 300,000 visitors, 50,000 school children. So uh, they are, they're, they're responsible for, for financing this project. And so the project begins with this idea of building this castle, sort of proving that you can pick up these medieval trades and that we can figure these things out um, and sort of experimental archaeology. Um, Is the project complete? Is the castle done or will it never be done? Uh, The castle, I suppose to some extent, to some extent will never be done. Uh, Our aim here, of course, is not to build the castle as quickly as possible. Uh, it's important to note that in the 13th century, the same team of builders would have finished this castle years ago. We're taking a lot, lot longer than medieval castle builders. We're entering our 24th year. Uh, It would have taken half the amount of time to build this size of castle belonging to a a relatively modest nobleman. Uh, And the reason that we're taking longer is that we have 300,000 visitors. Uh, We are here not just to build the castle, but to explain. And so the aim isn't to just get the last stone in place. The aim is to understand as we go and to explain, explain to the archaeologists that work with us, but also to the visiting public. And there's, so for American audiences hearing this, or any audience for that matter, but I know right now on you know, Amazon Prime Video and other ways you can watch Secrets of the Castle, which was a, a BBC documentary. Did that 
maybe just tell people a little bit about what that was. Did that propel a lot of interest? Was that a big, was that sort of a watershed moment for the site? I think it was a watershed moment in terms of international visitors, less less probably so in France. The project was already quite well known uh, in France uh, when the BBC came. But yes, certainly in terms of international visitors, it gave us a, a huge opportunity to tell our story. Um, and it was it was a really it was a really nice time because obviously we're talking in COVID. Uh, we're also talking post Brexit, so it was just a really nice time in terms of building bridges. You know, it was really exciting to have uh, the English presenters, the English team coming in and working alongside the French crew. So for me, I've got really, really fond memories of that time. And how did that all come about? Was that something that you guys pitched? I think the reason I ask is we have a lot of people who listen who run sites who are engaged in this kind of work on the public history side. And I think that there'd be sort of a little bit of interest in how that kind of comes about. Like we don't have, and we've, we've had this conversation before on PreserveCast, there's not as much a tradition in the United States of heritage as entertainment as there is on the BBC and in other places. And, um, it seems like a great way to get people engaged and excited about history and then obviously come and visit and things like that. Was it something that you guys pitched? Was it something that the BBC came and said, Hey, what about this? How does something like that come about? It came about through the, the production house, uh, Lion Television, uh, who also produced uh, other series, which uh, Ruth, Tom, Alex, um, and uh, Peter worked on as uh, so a Victorian farm that some of your, your uh, viewers might have seen. Uh, so they come along and they produced uh, a film called Going Medieval. And I think obviously that got them thinking. And they got back to us and said, would you like to do Medieval Farm? And my boss said, no. And I was like, what? You're crazy. This is a really great opportunity for us. Um, but she was right because then they came back a few years later and said, okay, we'll do Medieval Castle. So we got to really center the, the, the whole film really around what we were doing, uh, which is building a castle using, using medieval techniques. So uh, that came, that's how that came about really. It was really through Lion Television. So why don't we take a quick break here, and when we come back, let's talk about the trades and um, what are what's been practiced there, what you guys have learned, and and we'll talk about trades training and um, the the future of this really fan fantastic and, and fascinating site. And we'll do that right here on PreserveCast. We want to thank Oliver Pluff and Company for sponsoring today's episode of PreserveCast. Oliver Pluff and Company tells the story of historic American beverages, including teas, spice drinks cacao, and coffee for historic sites, national parks, gourmet markets, and consumers looking for a great beverage hand-packaged in signature artisan tins. To enjoy a cup of history and learn more about what Oliver Pluff and Company offers, please visit oliverpluff.com. That's Oliver Pluff, spelled P-L-U-F-F dot com. This is Nick Redding. You're listening to PreserveCast. Today, we're talking with Sarah Preston, who's coming to us from about two hours south of Paris. And we're talking all about Guédelon, a uh, historic site where they're learning by doing and building a medieval castle, 13th century castle. We've been talking all about sort of how the project came together, the financing of it, the self-financing of it, the media around it, the international exposure. Um, and, you know, we've touched a little bit, Sarah, on sort of historic trades and how the trades kind of come together here. So um, I, 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 this is probably a big question because there's so many trades that come together, but how many of the trades that are practiced 
on site were known or understood before the project began? I mean, how much of this is truly experimental or, or has been? I mean, obviously, a lot of these trades still exist, whether it's carpentry, stonemasonry, blacksmithing. Uh, what makes it different here is really going back and trying to use the same tools, the same techniques. So there was definitely a degree in the early days, at least, of the workers on site having to learn to forget some of the modern practices that they had. Um, certain trades, um, I don't think there's a school in France where you get to learn to be a quarryman. That was definitely a trade that we had to revive here. Obviously, there are other parts of the world uh, who are still quarrying by hand, but that was something that we really had to do ourselves uh, in terms of making mortar, uh, learning to make lime mortar, learning to burn the lime, learning to, to mix the mortar, learning to build with the stones, that was something that we had to learn on the job. Uh, the lime mortar that we use here isn't permitted in restoration, for example, of historic buildings. So the work that we've done here is gonna be really important in terms of having evidence of saying, look, here we are, we've got 20 years of experience behind us. We've experimented with this material. This is how it operates. This is how it behaves. And hopefully it's something that we can see reintroduced uh, into building. Well, why? And I'm curious. I didn't know this. Why Why is it not permitted? And you're saying in France it's not permitted. Why is it not permitted? It's not, it's not, got a, uh, it's not standardized. It doesn't behave in the same way uh, that a, a modern cement will, will behave. Uh, so it's really using it depends on having skilled stonemasons because you can build a wall with it. And if you build correctly, you're going to have a, a really solid wall, which, as we know, is going to stand for hundreds of years. You only have to look at medieval cathedrals to know that. If you don't have skilled masons doing it, then you've got something that could fall apart very, very quickly because it's not it's the, the way that the stones are placed alongside the mortar, which is going to give the strength to the wall. So that's something that we've had to, to really learn on the job. Have there been any failures? I mean, I don't mean walls falling over, but have there been things where it's like, yeah, that didn't work. That's not how they did it. Absolutely. And that's that they're the, some of the most exciting moments, to be honest. That's when you realize the kind of the experimental nature of the project. Um, you talked about, well, no, we haven't had any walls falling down, thankfully. But the very first vault that we built, I'm just, if I look out of the window, I can just see the tower from here. Uh, the very first vault back in 2002, there was a question about whether you needed in between the stone ribs to place some kind of shuttering to support the webbing. Uh, they tried without it. The answer is you do need some sort of shuttering. So that experiment <laughs> was quite a quick end. But, but so, I, you know, now we're on to our sixth, sixth or so vault. But the first vault back in 2002, the guys who were there described that as a really nerve-wracking moment. You know, none, none of them had built a vault from scratch before. So to be under those tons of uh, rubble and mortar was a, a pretty scary moment. And have there been any trades that have just been like, you guys haven't cracked it yet. Like we're just like, we don't know how they did that. At the moment. Um, yeah, definitely. There are some trades that we've tried where iron smelting, for example, which uh, we've, we've tried, we've done several different uh, experiments around iron smelting. We're doing okay, but I wouldn't say that we've mastered it by any means. And what is iron smelting for people who aren't familiar? Because I'm not sure I might be one of those people. <laughs> well, iron smelting, we've got a quarry here of iron stone. So we can extract the stone to build with, but you also find in the quarry um, iron ore. 
And so that iron ore, once it's crushed, can be placed in a, in a bloomery furnace, and that's then heated to 1,300 degrees Celsius. So these really hot temperatures, you can then extract the iron from the other kind of waste materials that are in the stone. And at the end of the, the whole process, you make a, you've got your furnace, you make a hole at the base, and the slag will then run off. So that's all the, the sand, for example, that's, that's in the iron ore. And what you can then find at the bottom is a bloom of iron. And that iron, once it's hammered out, can be then used to, to make tools. It's a process that we've, we've done. We've made, we have successfully made a number of blooms, but I wouldn't claim we've mastered it. Um, the big question at the moment is around windows. And this is something which we couldn't uh, look into with the team from the BBC because we were building the window, but we weren't looking at how you would actually fill the space. How would you fill the frame? So we worked with a number of archaeologists. They came back to us with evidence on illuminated manuscripts or in financial accounts, which showed that although glass existed, it was pretty much reserved for royal castles and religious buildings that a castle like Guedelon would have used different materials uh, that might have been parchment skin or uh, wax cloth so we're experimenting with that because sorry well you might sat find on a financial record payments to Mr so-and-so for painting a wax cloth it doesn't tell you how they did it so that's where the experimental archaeology comes in. We can start to try and fill those gaps in the in the knowledge and then pass that information back to, to the scientific committee. It's amazing stuff that's going on there. And it just, I mean, and I, I've, I've been following you guys on Facebook and we encourage other people to do that. And we'll have a link to Facebook and the site and everything like that in the show notes. So people will just click on that and, and follow you guys. Um, but yeah, I, I I think you just recently did a post about those windows and it's pretty cool. Um, so definitely something to to um, to look into. So who are the tradespeople that are doing work on site? I mean, there's there's a whole focus right now. We have a, an effort called the Campaign for Historic Trades um, that we're working on to try and do trades training here in the United States. But who are the tradespeople? And, and have, there, have you figured out a way to create opportunities for training? Like, is there a way to bring people on site to learn these trades and then go on and, you know, do work elsewhere in France to restore other places based on what they've learned there. Talk to us about the tradespeople themselves. Absolutely. Well, I think initially, because obviously this is a 24-year-old project now, so there's quite a big difference between, say, how we recruit, re recruited in the early days and how we recruit now. Uh, initially, uh, we have one professional in each of the different crafts, and they were there to then train other members of the team. So lots of the people who arrived uh, in the early days, they learned on the job. Now, when we're looking for a heritage skills mason, we will look for someone who's had a certain amount of training before they come here. And very often part of their training will have been doing work experience on site because we work with a number of uh, schools in France who are looking to increase trades training. I don't know what it's like in the US, but certainly in France, there's still this attitude that um, to succeed you have to have done years and years of academic training and uh, vocational skills and certainly building skills are, are not valued and one of the things that we're really wanting to do at Gednot is to say that if you're going to work with your hands you have to be able to work with your head it goes together whether that's understanding geometry whether that's being able to to calculate uh, the, the load 
code that's going to be uh, uh, on your, your vault or your arch. All of these are important skills and are desperately needed in France. We saw with the fire at Notre Dame, the, the need to, to have skills and knowledge which allow us to restore the heritage sites that have been left to us by time. And so, you know, Gedlo has its part to play in that. We have trainees on site each season. We also welcome members of the public who want to kind of lend a hand, but we're really wanting to concentrate on becoming a, a, a training center for these skills. And have you tried your hand at any of this? I know you're an interpreter, but how could you be there and not get your hands a little dirty, right? I'm actually, I'm really rubbish. I'm so unpractical. It's <laughs> unbelievable. Um, no, um, I'm not, no, I'm, I'm awful. Really. I don't think there's anything I'm good at practically. Nothing. Nothing at all. But have you tried your hand at them at least? No, I get really bored. I'm terrible. My, I'm, I'm married to the wood turner, so I'm you know I, I know what it's like to be around someone who's just really passionate about their craft and yeah. And I admire the finish. I really I do. I admire the finished product, but um, yeah, I, I'm really aware that I could not do that. So it's all very well. I can talk about it and show people what's what's going on. But that's why I also have such admiration for the people who are actually doing it, because you do you do need to have skills and patience that I just can't imagine having. And we didn't know. I don't think we knew in advance that you're married to the woodturner. Is that a, a Guédelon, Guédelon uh, romance story, or did it did it come about because of this? No, he has an he has a really really strong uh, London accent. Um, my other half, so no, he I don't always understand everything he says. No, it's not a it's not a a, a romance that was born at Gedlong. But you brought did you bring him there? or You guys go together? We came together. We came together. That's really cool. What a neat story. What a kind of a, a dual medieval career. You don't see a lot of those anymore. You don't see a lot of that. And for him, it was a really <laughs> amazing opportunity because whereas I was really excited by the history and the language, for him, he was really excited by this opportunity to learn about using a traditional pole lathe. And Gedlon gave him just hours and hours of, of time to get it wrong. Because that's what you also need when you're learning to do anything is that the, the time to fail. And that's also what a 24-year-old project gives us. And I think it's also what's unusual and provoking almost about this project is in this age where everything has to be done yesterday and everything has to be done really fast. We're saying, no, we're going to take the time it takes. And if it takes 25 years, well, it will take 25 years. And um through you asking have things gone wrong and they they obviously they go wrong and that didn't work out how we wanted but that's how we move forward that's how we we gain the skills and knowledge which we're now able to pass on you know if you go into the quarry today they make it look like child's play they're in front of a huge block of stone uh some you know a quarryman will walk around it uh, insert a couple of metallic wedges strike them with his sledgehammer and that's it it's open it makes it look really simple but there are years and years of of failure of head scratching of wondering whether this project is doable at all because in the early days we just couldn't provide enough stone to the to the banker masons or to the fixer masons so it's taken time and now of course we can you know can train very quickly someone else who comes along but we had to kind of from scratch revive those revive those skills and I'm curious, you know, be before we come to a conclusion here, is there, 
are there other are there any other sites like this across the world that are doing this kind of experimental work at creating castles and reviving lost trades are, are there is there a, a consortium of sites like yours not not a consortium but i'm very glad that gedlon has inspired other sites and we were inspired when we began by a project called uh, hermione which was the rebuilding of lafayette's ship i don't know if that's the right word um which then oh, right. sailed come and visited the united states that's right. Now, we were inspired by the, the idea there, the difference being there that they weren't using traditional tools or traditional techniques, but the idea of rebuilding something from the past. And then in turn, we definitely uh, inspired other sites. There's a site in Germany, Campus Galli. Uh, they're building and they're building a monastery that never really existed, but the plans exist. So they're, they're trying to interpret those plans. They don't know if they were plans for a monastery that was really going to be built or whether it's kind of like an idealized plan of a perfect monastery, but they're building in a, in a similar way. That project's about five or so years old. Um, I'm sure there'll be others because once it's, it seems like such an obvious idea now. You had to have it, obviously, but now it's going. You think, of course, what better way to understand? Yeah, what better way to understand them by doing? So what is next for Guédelon? What is next for the site? Is it just to continue to keep doing it? At some point, you'll finish. Will there be, we're going to add on, we're going to do this, we're going to change this? Um, and what are the, what's the hope post-COVID? I mean, I, I guess it's day by day when you'll be able to reopen. I know you were hoping to reopen, and then that's kind of been scuttled. But where, what's the, what's the future for you guys? The future, I'd say the future is bright. I think it's going to be okay. We're going to have... Another difficult season, obviously last season was very, very stressful. We didn't open until the 11th of June and we didn't know how we were going to welcome the public. The difference is now, okay, that yeah, we were supposed to open yesterday and I'm as disappointed as, as anyone that the gates aren't open. But we know that when they open, we know how to safely welcome people. We know how to, to keep social distancing in place that we know we can do it safely. So that stress is, is off our minds. Uh, the vaccination program is getting rolling now in France, so that's all good news. So I'm very, very hopeful for 2022. In terms of the building, there are still some really exciting projects to come. The portcullis, building, fitting, lifting the portcullis. Um, and what is a portcullis? Portcullis is, now that's the sliding grill, which will then come down. So you've got your, a twin tower gatehouse. The entrance is between them, and that entrance will be defended by a number of defensive elements. There's a murder hole, so a hole in the ceiling above, so you can keep a good eye on any activity below. And, and you call a that a, mur a murder hole? Murder hole, yeah. Murder hole. That's the first time murder hole has been used on PreserveCast, so I'm, that's good. There'll be uh, arrow loops, so is that a first? Uh, I don't know. Probably at first, although we have some, we have, you know, some like, uh, decorative arrow loops here in the U S I don't think they were ever used, um, in, in that way. Yeah. Well, the main, the main feature is going to be this huge iron, well, it's going to be wood, wood with iron supports. Um, so we know that they existed. There's one at the tower of London. They're obviously they're shown on all medieval iconography. The question for us is going to be, how are we going to raise that? So we'll be going away, looking at models. The last surviving uh, witnesses, of course, are the castles themselves. So by going back, visiting them, studying them, photographing them, we get clues as to how they were built. So we'll bring all that back, put it all together. And I hope next time we talk, uh, we'll have a, Portcullis being 
in place. That would be great. Well, that would be great. And it'd be great to uh, uh, take PreserveCast on the road and come visit someday. Um, before we go, generally the most difficult question we ask anybody who comes here, um, and we'll exempt you, you, you don't have to mention Gay de Long, but what is your favorite historic place or site? Well, I get out of that because, of course, Gedlock isn't, strictly speaking, a historic site. Everything Although it's is, getting there, right? I mean, it's it's going to be historic in its own right someday. Okay, so not including Gedlock. Right. I suppose for a Wiltshire lass, it would have to be Stonehenge. Wow. I love that. I don't think Stonehenge has ever been um, has ever been brought up, but that's that's a that's a that's a good one. Do you remember your first time going there? Is it, was it, were you a kid? Oh yeah, we, yeah. I would have been really small. I don't remember the first time. I remember when we used to go. It was before all the fences were up, so we could just like walk around and got photos of all sitting on the stones. And then I remember when it was all oh, you weren't allowed to go at the solstice, and the police would ring it off, and we'd all try and get in anyway. So yeah, I've got good memories of Stonehenge. Well, that is a uh, a perfect place to end the conversation, and uh, we definitely will have to have you back um, and keep talking as the as the project progresses. Um, Sarah, it's been a pleasure. Thanks for joining us today. Merci. Thank you. Thanks for listening to PreserveCast. To dig deeper into this episode's story, head over to PreserveCast.org for show notes and our collection of previous episodes. Don't forget to engage with this podcast by subscribing, commenting, and leaving a review. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at PreserveCast for even more. PreserveCast is currently recorded in Walkersville, Maryland, and sponsored by the 1772 Foundation and powered by Preservation Maryland. Thanks for listening and keep on preserving.